Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We hope that you're having a great summer. Thanks to Taylor Terzik for producing this episode. To all of you who give regularly to OnScript, you can do so at onscript.study forward slash donate if you'd like to join uh, there uh, for occasional book giveaways and whatnot as well. And um, we also want to say thanks to um, anyone who has given us a rating on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to do that, we would really appreciate it. Uh, it, it helps people find the show and uh, enables us to hear from you as well. We don't hear tons of feedback all the time, um, and we appreciate when we do. And that's one way you can show your appreciation. So thanks for that, and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to On Script. I'm Matthew Bates. In Revelation 1, 4 through 5, John addresses the seven churches which are in Asia, Charis, Humin, Kyrene, as he gives the greeting, grace to you and peace, uh, the traditional Christian greeting. And then he continues from there using Greek that some have identified as barbaric. Apahaon, Kaihaen, Kaiha Erkamanas. And uh, John says, from the one who is and the one who was and the coming one. Uh, but he breaks Greek grammar in speaking in this way. What is John up to? Uh, why would he do this? And he continues from there to speak about uh, uh, the one, uh, this, this very one also um, being the one from the seven uh, spirits, which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, uh, the, the witness, the faithful one, the firstborn from among the dead ones, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So uh, as we think about John's barbaric use of Greek here, as some scholars have asserted, is John maybe trying to do something more? Is he trying maybe to teach us something about God's very essence? Today we're going to be biblical and theological in equal parts. Our topic is the doctrine of the Trinity, and we'll focus conversation especially on the book of Revelation. Toward that end, I've invited Brandon Smith. Welcome to OnScript, Brandon. Thanks, Matt, for having me on. Now, Brandon, um, I've had the chance to share a couple meals with you over the years, so I know a little bit about your story, um, but I'd like to hear more, and I think my listeners would like to hear more, too. Um, and so I want to begin just by asking you, how did you become a Christian? Uh, I, I need to say, too, by the way, that you and I have missed our steak, annual steak dinner, so we need to do that again, maybe in San Antonio. I think San Antonio was the first time we did it, now that I think about it. So Yeah, I believe so. I would... Absolutely. I, I love to eat, and I, and I enjoy hanging out with you. And you're paying this time, so it works out really well for me. <laughs> we'll see about that. We'll see. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in a non-Christian home. My mom and dad, neither one really had a faith background. Uh, my dad had gone to church a little bit when he was younger. Uh, my mom has uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, on her side of the family, so that's kind of an influence. But there was really never any talk about God or the gospel in my house at all. My dad worked full-time, mom stayed home. It was kind of a typical thing like that, but there was also drugs and other things like that uh, throughout my childhood. And uh, my parents got divorced when I was 13, and uh, my dad started going to church. Uh, one of the reasons I think he was just lost and trying to figure out what to do with himself. I think another thing was that his lawyer uh, thought it'd be good for the custody battle if uh, he was going to church uh, while he was trying to get custody of me and my brother. 
Uh, but in the midst of all that, my dad started taking me and my brother to church every Sunday with him. He had us every weekend. He had us on Wednesday nights. So we were pretty much, anytime we were with him, we were at church. And through that, the Lord used that to save uh, my dad and me. So we were both baptized in the same church a week apart. And um, so I got to see a really, you know, good fruit in his life as, as my life was changing as well. And as somebody who was in the midst of, you know, divorce, broken home, uh, my, my stepdad was abusive. My mom was on drugs. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on. I moved out of my house when I was 16. And so I was really kind of just trying to figure out, you know, what is life? What am, what am I going to do with this? You know, my whole world was shaken. And I think, you know, the gospel was the answer to that longing, um, that there is a king uh, who cares for us and who has a hope for us and who uh, can provide comfort in our suffering and things like that. And so um, I, you know, felt that and understood that and, and gave my life to it. And then I had a few years of, of prodigal wandering after high school. And uh, in my early 20s, the Lord really got back a hold of me in a really clear way. And um, I basically said, okay, I'm going to take my faith seriously. Well, I don't know what this all looks like. I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life career-wise and otherwise. And so uh, I started listening to people preach the gospel. I started going to church regularly and I just kept thinking, man, I want to do that. Like, this is what changed my life is people preaching the gospel. I want to do something like that. And, you know, whatever it is, a calling or a sense or, or a leading of the spirit or whatever language you want to use there, that just felt very obvious to me that this is what the Lord wanted me to do. And so I had a pastor who who discipled me and took me under his wing and, and affirmed those gifts and helped me think through those and uh, made me a youth pastor probably way earlier than I should have been uh, teaching teenagers. And uh, I started teaching the gospel uh, after that. And that was, uh, I think for me, that was the most obvious path that the Lord had me on. And so I can trace all the way back to my parents' divorce and onward to kind of where I am today, which I'm very grateful for. Well, thanks for your willingness to share some of your story. And um, I think it's beautiful how redemptive it is that even in the midst of some brokenness, um, that and even maybe with mixed motives, right? Your your father wanting to win this custody battle, but also sensing something was lacking in his life, something some brokenness, right? That he wanted the restoration, and that you got swept up into that. Um, so I love hearing um, those kinds of stories. And you began to speak about this a little bit um, uh, that you felt a calling to preach. You were uh, you mentored. How did that process get formalized for you in terms of you know like? like b both maybe a formal conviction that this was the path you wanted to, to pursue, but also like what formal studies did you pursue? And, and yeah, how did, how did that um, shape you? I, I knew that if I wanted to pastor or do anything in ministry, I needed to go to school. So that was kind of the first step. Uh, I'd flunked out of college. I had gone in and out of community college a little bit here and there. And um, once I got to that point, I said, okay, I, I want to go preach the Bible. I want to get trained for it. I want to be both, you know, trained to do it and also have the the resume that you would need to do something like that generally. And so as a 24-year-old, I was a freshman uh, at Dallas Baptist University in Dallas, went and got a Bible degree there. It was within that first semester, first year, I kept sitting in class and I was doing the same thing I was doing before. I was like, man, I want to do what he's doing. I want to teach. I want to get up and, and do this in a classroom setting. I just love the classroom, uh, love being a part of sort of academic studies. And so I was a youth pastor. I'd been doing ministry and preaching and things like that, but I kind of thought, man, academic ministry, that might be it. And so I realized, as, as we all do, that you have to have a PhD to do that. And so I knew that that was my path for the next decade or so. And so I got my undergrad in Bible at Dallas Baptist. I went to Criswell College in Dallas for my master's. I got to be on staff there and get tuition paid for, uh, which was nice, but also the master's program was, was a lot of seminars and reading primary sources. And in the middle of all that, I'm obviously thinking about, well, what do I want to do 
uh, for academic ministry. If I want to do a dissertation, what is that going to look like? And everybody pretty much said, write on something you're interested in uh, because dissertations are hard enough as it is. And I had just really fallen in love with the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the way the church fathers were articulating the doctrine of the Trinity, and then even more so the way that they read the Bible to get to the conclusions that they got to. You know, finding out that the church fathers were not sort of just philosophical weirdos, but actually read the Bible uh, was kind of new for me because I had not been told that early in my ministry. And so that kind of intersection there of, of interpretation and Trinity and church fathers all just kind of coalesced into um, a really deep interest. And then I had read Wesley Hill's Paul and the Trinity. I'd read your Birth of the Trinity. Uh, you already know this. I'm not sucking up just because uh, I'm on your podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, and some other things like that. And just it, it all came together. And I thought, I want to do something kind of interdisciplinary like this, something that's a, a, a theology, a theological reading of a book. Uh, Michael Bird ended up being my, my supervisor. Um, part of the reason why I want to study with him was that exact reason. He is uh, very interdisciplinary, understands a lot of things. He, the thing that people probably don't realize until they're around him long enough is he's like a walking bibliography. Um, he just, I mean, it's crazy. And so I knew he was the kind of guy that I wanted to study with. And so uh, I said, I want to do a Trinitarian reading of the Bible. And Michael Bird said, let's do Revelation. Let's do the hardest doctrine in the hardest book. And uh, that's what ended up going into a dissertation and then uh, this book that we're talking about. So, And so the title of um, Brandon Smith's uh, newish book, uh, I think it's a 2022 title, um, and this book is titled uh, The Trinity in the Book of Revelation, Seeing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in John's Apocalypse, published by IVP Academic in their Studies in Christian Doctrine and Scripture series. So keep your eye out for that, uh, the Trinity in the book of Revelation, the main title. Um, so, yeah, you end up with Mike Bird as a supervisor. Mike Bird's a long, uh, long, long-time friend of the podcast. So you have to, you just absolutely have to tell us at least one Mike Bird story, hopefully an awkward one, <laughs> um, from uh, the time in which you were studying with him. Well, yeah, I mean, Michael Bird is always awkward. And so there's, you know, a sense in which studying with him for six years just is... Uh, awkwardness <laughs> yeah one one lengthy just awkward experience yeah. and he's uh he has no shame so he's not going to be offended by the fact that i said that um yeah you know my, my favorite story of his that i tell a lot is the first time i turned in a first draft to him i thought i'd done a pretty good job and uh i got it back you know just marked up all over and one of the comments that he put in there was save this for baptist rs this is not an academic uh chapter and uh, that was my awakening of, oh, I don't, maybe I'm not as ready as I thought I was to do this. <laughs> um, and every once in a while he would do something like that. He'd say, you know, save this for the Gospel Coalition. This isn't a dissertation, you know, things like that. Um, so he was always a, he was always good at uh, skewering me in a funny way that kind of took the sting off of the fact that he was like, this is terrible. And so that was pretty much, uh, that was pretty much about six years with old uh, Mike Bird. Well, very good. Um, now, it's safe to say Revelation has not been a go-to resource for the Doctrine of the Trinity. You think Revelation has a lot to offer, and I think you demonstrate that in your book. Um, but why do you think this book has been neglected, the book of Revelation, in the larger guild with regard to doctrine as a whole? It's a difficult book to understand. I think that's always a big part of it. Uh, I realized very quickly that uh, I was not going to understand it fully by the time I got done with my dissertation. I feel like, you know, several years after finishing and teaching on it and talking about it, that I still don't really fully understand everything that's going on there, or at least I don't have as strong of a conviction as I thought I would about certain things. I think when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity in particular, I mean, one of the things about Revelation is that it doesn't use kind of straightforward Trinitarian language in the way that we might like. So I always think about the fact that even people in the quote-unquote guild that don't affirm that the Trinity is biblical or something like that, 
will will say something like, well, the Gospel of John's, I mean, that's the closest thing to it, or that is Trinitarian and it was some sort of later development, but not actually what Jesus taught or something. But most people recognize John as Trinitarian in some sense. And it's partly because you just read the Gospel of John and it's like the Father sent the Son and the Son sent the Spirit and the Father and Spirit and the Son are one and et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's, it's almost kind of jumping off the page at you and you have to deal with it. I think in Revelation, it's just not as clear. You don't ever get the word Holy Spirit. You get the Spirit. You get seven spirits, which we could talk about some other things like that. Um, Jesus is obviously Jesus. He's called the Lamb. There's all kinds of things going on with him there. And so I think it's just not as obvious Trinitarian language as people are always looking for or expecting. And so part of it is that you really have to, in a sense, learn the way that John is speaking and sort of pick up on his idiom so that you can get down the road of understanding what he's actually doing and, and why the Trinity is in there. And so I think that just takes a, a lot of work. Um, one thing I, I note in the book that I think is interesting, though, is that a lot of people who deny, for example, that Jesus is God in the book of Revelation still have to deal with the fact that he's being exalted extremely high in Revelation. Um, so then it's like, well, maybe he's just a you know, vice regent of God or maybe something else or he's, a, he's an exalted angel or something. He's sitting on the throne. What do we do with that, right? So I think people uh, recognize that about Jesus. I think the Holy Spirit's a lot more difficult to work through, at least it was for me. And so it's just, it takes a lot more work than I think most people are probably willing to uh, do because maybe most people aren't like me thinking the Trinity is definitely in the Bible. So I expect to, uh, you know, that the book of Revelation is not just some weird book that doesn't match the rest of scripture. So I think some of it is maybe just approach and presupposition. Some of it's just the hard work that it takes to get there. So... Good. Yeah. And let's press into that um, approach and presupposition business a little bit. Um, and as we, you, I think a strength of your book is you have a, a fairly lengthy and robust method section as appropriate for this is a revised dissertation. So not surprising. Yeah. Um, but, and since also we found out that Mike Bird kept like, you know, forcing you to redo your work. Yeah. Um, what, um, what then counts as a Trinitarian reading and when you're thinking about method? I think, so there's a couple of layers that go into it, right? So if you think that a Trinitarian reading of Scripture means that the biblical authors are all Nicene, well, that's not what I'm saying. And I don't think that would be appropriate to say. So one way to think about it is that um, each biblical author in their own way of speaking and in their own sort of context and things like that, all of them, I think it's pretty clear to say in the New Testament particularly, and I think, you know, there's all kinds of questions about how the Old Testament sort of points to the Trinity or how it's revealed in the New Testament, things like that. But I think if you look at the biblical data, you're going to have a hard time escaping the fact that Jesus is exalted to the place of the Father in many ways, uh, receives worship, claims to be uh, Yahweh in certain texts. Um, now, again, there's always, you know, there's always a hundred layers of debates about every one of these statements I'm about to say. Um, but you see him being worshipped. You see him, uh, biblical texts about Yahweh being applied to him uh, in the New Testament. You see uh, all this language about him coming to forgive sins and him coming to offer hope and all these kind of things. And so Jesus's portrait in all the New Testament is at the very least some sort of divine portrait. So that's maybe the most basic way to say it. And then you've got the Holy Spirit, which is a whole other kind of bag of, of worms, bag of worms, is that the phrase, whatever the, whatever the phrase is. Um, it's weird. Uh, but even with the Holy Spirit, you have a sense in which he receives a name. He receives some sort of personal attributes as one who acts, as one who speaks, these kind of things. And the Holy Spirit does things that only God can do. He sanctifies, he makes us temples, he lives in us as temples, this kind of language, right? Well, this is all over the New Testament. So I think at the very least, what you have to make, you have to deal with is the fact that the New Testament data speaks about 
the Son and the Spirit in ways that the Bible speaks about Yahweh and in ways that the Old Testament has already given you categories to think about who Yahweh is. So this is why, for example, I think the Jews are so bewildered by Jesus's claims, you know, like he gets called a blasphemer several times. Well, why is that? Because they recognize that he's claiming some sort of equality with Yahweh, which is obviously not appropriate in their eyes. So I would say a Trinitarian reading is at the very, at the very beginning is something like that, recognizing the sense in which the Son and Spirit are being identified with Yahweh, made equal with Yahweh, even at times treated like Yahweh. And then at that point, you have a decision to make. Is Deuteronomy 6 true that there is one God, or do we have three gods now? Right. So that's where the Trinitarian stuff starts getting, you know, stuff start really doing the work there theologically and biblically to say, well, how is it that we can say there is one God and yet these three persons are equated with Yahweh in different ways? So that's where I would start. And then I think what is happening in Revelation is that John is doing very much the same thing as he's drawing on the prophets and, and all these Old Testament themes and allusions, that he is exalting the Son and Spirit uh, to the level of Yahweh in the same way the other biblical authors are. So John doesn't give us a creed, uh, the Nicene Creed. He doesn't affirm the Nicene Creed in, the, in there anywhere. He doesn't use words like uh, homoousios or hypostasis or anything like that. But what he does do is uh, use ontological language to talk about the Lamb or the Son and the spirit, and then is drawing on these Old Testament texts that I think the only way you can ultimately understand them is have to make sense of the fact that we still have one God, and yet these three persons are being called God. And then that gets you down the road to, you know, how you end up with Trinitarian theology. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that you, you on the one hand, want to say, like, we don't see a full Nicene theology, um, because that would be anachronistic anyway. Yep. Um, and so what you maybe use, and this might be helpful to spell out for our listeners, a, what you might call a pro-Nicene toolkit yep. um, and advocating for um, something that is maybe moving along the road toward uh, Nicene tr tr Trinitarianism or uh, even after Nicaea, right, we have, you know, uh, we have Athanasius still doing battle, right, yep. uh, who's trying to fight for um, the Nicene um, synthesis, right, in, li in light of the Homoians and, and the other, you know, kind of uh, pro pro uh, factions, right, that are still alive and well, even after the Council of Nicaea. And Lewis Ayers uh, chronicles much of this, who, who wrote the forward to your book. Um, anyway, um, yeah, how then, um, I guess, when you're thinking about this pro-Nicene uh, um, toolkit, how would your book be different, or would it be possible to even read Revelation? And this might be a way of getting at the question in a, in a roundabout way. Would it be possible to read the Re Revelation in a different way if you were to say, Let, I'm going to read it in a pro-Aryan way, or I'm going to read it in a pro-modalist way? Uh, I'm going to try to see um, if the doctrine of the Trinity lends itself to a, 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 a pro-modalist conclusion. Um, if you were to do so, um, you, you have a you know, pro-Nicene toolkit. Do you think you could have come to, um, would, would data in Revelation just have resisted a pro-Aryan reading? Is that your claim? Um, what, what's your claim? Yeah, so there's a, a few claims in there. That's a, that's a really insightful question. I think... The reason why I end up using a pro-Nicene toolkit in part is because I think what the pro-Nicene consensus does, which is essentially the kind of the flowering of Trinitarian theology, particularly in the fourth century, what they end up doing is they have 400 years of debate and conversation, and you've got your modalists, you've got your Arians, you've got all kinds of different groups that pop up. And you've got 400 years of conversation where continually in different ways and in different terminology and things like that throughout those 400 years, you have people coming back to kind of the same basic conclusion, which is that the Son or the Logos is 
divine in some sense. He is equal to the Father and reveals the Father in some sense, which is a, a very clear claim. Um, same with the Spirit. And when the modalists pop up, for example, and, and Athanasius deals with all of them in, in various ways, you know, Athanasius, for example, will say, well, what the modalists keep missing, and I'm paraphrasing uh, here, obviously, from a lot of his work, but what he'll say is that what the modalists keep missing is the fact that you have these three persons who speak to each other. So, for example, Jesus prays to the Father, right? You've got the baptism scene, which everybody comes back to. What do you do with like, what's a modalist going to do with that? Obviously, a modalist has answers, mm-hmm. but it's not as satisfactory. Um, so you've got these these sending language things like that. So you've got a clear distinction that you just have to acknowledge. This is what Athanasius would say, and I would agree, obviously. Um, and then you've got maybe like a tritheist. Well, the problem with that is Deuteronomy six, which I mentioned earlier. There is one God. So biblically speaking, we can't say three gods, or we're in we're in all kinds of other hot water. So that doesn't seem to work either. Um, and the Arians come along and it's like, okay, maybe Arianism, maybe that's kind of a nice middle way somehow, right? Because what Arius wants to claim is that Jesus is divine in some sense, but he's still a creature. He's still a divine, a divine creature or something uh, separate, uh, at least a separate substance from the father. So when you get to revelation, you can see at times, um, Jesus, uh, for example, handing things over to the father or in some sense being, uh, under the authority of God or being sent by God and these kind of things, right? Or being the one who um, is the mediator, mediator between God and man, these kind of things. And Arians would say, well, yeah, that makes total sense. He's a divine creature. So he can be both, a me- he can be a mediator, basically. He's like the perfect in-between substance or nature that you would need for this. The problem, I think, in Revelation, where you, what you end up with is that Jesus is exalted higher than that. Because ultimately, not only is he just a mediator, but he is called, he is praised for being the creator. He's worshiped as the creator. So then you're getting into the conversation of, you know, Arians would say, well, he's a creator in some sense because he's a, he's a sort of uh, instrument through which the father creates. So he kind of is a creator. Yeah. But what you're really saying is that he's like a scalpel or something. He's not actually like the creator himself. He's just a tool. The problem with that in Revelation is that he is worshiped alongside Yahweh. He shares titles with him, like Almighty, First and the Last, these kind of things, which are just very clearly eternal language, very clearly creator language for God throughout the Bible. And uh, he is uh, he's worshipped. So there's a lot of argument that I get into in the book where people say, well, maybe he's an exalted angel, something like that. The problem with that is that he receives worship without any sort of blushing, right? And when, when, when John bows down to worship the angels, they say, don't do that. We're servants with you. And so you've got, you've got Jesus being exalted. I think an Arian reading would end up not doing justice to the fact that he is being exalted even higher than that, that he is being equated with the Father in some really clear ways um, with titles and, and things like that. A modalist reading isn't going to work because you've got the, the conversation between them. You've got the um, distinction between them. Even as they share the throne, there's a distinction between God and the Lamb, these kind of things. Um, you know, the spirit is sent out as the eyes of the Lord roaming all over the earth, right? So I think a modalist reading is not going to make sense of that distinction. I think an Arian reading is not going to make sense of the elevation that 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 the son receives in Revelation. And so the, what I think the pro-Nicene toolkit does is it says, look, this is 400 years of time-tested argument about how to read the Bible as a unified whole, how to read it consistently, how to make sense of it. And Revelation, I think, actually just ends up uh, not surprisingly fitting into that, in part because... It would be anachronistic to say that John is Nicene. I would say pretty strongly, though, that the Nicene Creed and the Constantinopolitan Creed that comes later um, 
just are trying to make sense of what the Bible says. So they're biblical insofar as they're summarizing biblical texts in, I think, a faithful way. And so for me, you can, you can you read it another way? Yes, but I think you're going to end up with the same problems that I think the pro-Nicene, uh, pro-Nicenes ultimately end up clearing up for us. That they, they end up spending these years saying, okay, no, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. And I think the pro-Nicenes just end up giving you something that works, for lack of a better word. Yeah, and I, I think this is an important conclusion, um, partly because it guards you against the charge that this is just some sort of eisegesis or this is some sort of just reading, you know, something anachronistic back into the text that you're just reading later Nicene theology back into the text. But you're doing something different. You're using a pro-Nicene toolkit to show that um, the trajectories that lead into Nicaea end up making sense of the text in ways in which um, other solutions just simply don't. So, um, yeah, it's something that is birthed through the text, not something that is apart from the text. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important to your method um, and, and a helpful way of framing, I think, um, your whole project. Um, let, let me just do a little bit more to introduce you uh, properly. We've already heard a little bit about your academic journey just through your story, um, but I want to make sure people know who you are. Um, so Brandon Smith is Assistant Professor of Theology and New Testament at Cedarville University, which is a Christian university in Ohio. Uh, he holds his Ph.D. Um, from Ridley College, um, and uh, we've already heard about his uh, prior journey to that. He's the author of several books uh, beyond the book we are presently discussing, The Trinity in the Book of Revelation. Um, Brandon Smith has also written The Biblical Trinity uh, by Lexham, and he has a forthcoming book on hermeneutics that I've already had the chance to read and can recommend heartily, a book called Taught by God by B&H Academic, forthcoming sometime. Yeah. You can tell us more about that later. Uh, but anyway, Brandon is also the founder and co-host of the podcast Church Grammar, so you can check that out, podcast fans. So Brandon, um, in your chapter on the Father, you draw on a number of texts in Revelation. I already quoted Revelation 1, 4 to 5 to start this interview. Um, how do texts such as these then present what you call an incipient Trinitarian discourse? Yeah, the Father is, and I mentioned this a little bit, the Father in some sense is the least I mean, nobody quibbles about the fact that that God in Revelation is the Father. I mean, there's some debate about the Father language is not used a whole lot, so maybe there's something else going on there, but I think it's pretty clear that that's happening. The one thing I want to draw out is that the framing for the Father in the book of Revelation actually helps you understand the Son and Spirit better. It gives you a better understanding of what else is coming afterward. Um, so you've got, for example, you mentioned um, the sort of butchered Greek or whatever that people say. Um, or an egregious, I think somebody calls it egregious, uh, sort of Greek there. I think what's happening is that, and, and Kendall Sulin makes a really good point here, is that he ends up using the nominative case and the indeclinable uh, noun, um, the haon in there, uh, to kind of refer back to the tetragrammaton of Exodus 3, the I am language there, the he who is and was and is to come. He uses that again later, kind of as a parody with Satan, where he says the one who was not and, and didn't come, you know, this kind of this kind of language. And so there's kind of a clear uh, drawback to Exodus there, I think. And so, you know, what, what John does there, and I, and I make this argument, and I think, you know, there, there, I've got a ton of different views on how this all works out. I, I agree with Kendall Sulin that John is actually a really good Greek speaker and uses really sophisticated Greek at times. I mean, he's not using just a sort of like brute... Uh, he's not messing up all over the place. It's actually one of the only places you could point out that are very clearly not normal Greek grammar. And Kendall Sulin and I uh, would both sort of argue that actually I think he's doing it on purpose. I think he's doing it to refer to the Tetragrammaton, to let a Jewish uh, reader have their ears sort of, um, you know, hearing that and going, oh, the, I, I know what that is. You know, a good Bible reader will kind of understand what he's doing there. 
What's really interesting too is that people also point out um, that in the Roman world um, uh, that he's in, uh, in Laodicea, there is a an inscription on Aeon's um, sort of statue that's there. Uh, and Aeon, who kind of claims to be this god uh, in the Roman world, uh, says, I am all that has been and is and will be, and no mortal has lifted my handle. And so I think you could even make a further argument and say that what John is doing there is actually going against both the Jewish and the Greek expectation. He is both drawing on um, this sort of Greek idea of what Roman gods are and even the way they claim to be, you know, who they claim to be, and also referring back to Jewish scripture at the same time. So you could actually argue that he's, you've got kind of two ways to argue that he's doing that on purpose, I would say. So you got that tetragrammaton, I think, sets up a lot of the argument. And uh, you're not going to be surprised that the father is worshipped. You're not going to be surprised that the son, you know, sort of is under his authority in some sense, whatever. Uh, I think all that's going to make a lot of sense to most people. But I think that that sort of grammatical thing there throws a lot of people off. And if I can be so bold, I think it's partly because people are trying to find something else that they don't like what it might indicate. And so they're trying to find something else. Now, I don't think it proves Trinitarian theology just because it's there. I just think it's pretty obvious that he's calling him Yahweh of Exodus. I, I mean, I don't think that's like a that's like a crazy claim to to think that John thinks that about Yahweh, you know, especially as you look at how he draws on the prophets and other things throughout. So that's where I start there is with the Father to say, let's let's have the Father, let's, let's see the Father as a distinct figure. Uh, he's in this doxological formula that he shares with the seven spirits and Jesus, which we you know will have to deal with, obviously. But he's distinct from them, so he's distinguished as his own person, and that that really sets up a lot of other things because again, you don't end up with a modalist reading if you can see the distinction, and you also right off the bat have a framework for how John is going to talk about who the Father, Son, and Spirit are, and it's very clear right up front he's already drawing on the identity of Yahweh from the Old Testament or from the Hebrew Scriptures. And at that point, now you've got okay. I, I, John has actually set the table for me about how he's going to start doing what he's doing. And then you just read Revelation. And that's all he's doing. He's just drawing on the prophets. He's using phrases and allusions. And then it gets real interesting when he starts doing that with the Son and Spirit. So um, you know, let's press into that um, seven spirits business a little bit more yeah. as we do have that that in Revelation 1, 4, 4 to 5. So if we do, if the seven spirits is a reference to the Holy Spirit, then we do have a Trinitarian you know, um, yeah, greeting formulation there, right, as we have from the, the one who sits on the throne, clearly the Father, and from the seven spirits, right, and then, um, which are before the throne, and then from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, right, and so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah, do you see that as a, uh, the seven spirits as a reference to the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I do. I think, uh, so I've got a couple of things that I would do here, and actually, if I can shamelessly self-promote. Um, uh, Journal of Theological Interpretation uh, later this year, I have an article in there called the new, uh, it's something like the pneumatology of the book of Revelation. Uh, really, I'm really creative with my titles, if you can't tell. Mm. Um, and I basically actually lay this argument out in there. So if somebody wants to go read that, they can find it. But essentially what I, what I want to say is that that doxology there does, uh, it is programmatic for much of what John is going to do for the rest of the book. So I kind of hinted at that already with the father language. So you've got the seven spirits there in the doxology offering grace and peace. Well, throughout the biblical, but throughout the New Testament particularly, um, I would say throughout all of scripture, this grace and peace offering is something that Yahweh bestows on his people. This is a promise of hope. This is a promise of comfort. This is a promise that God is with them. This is a call to worship and a call to receive this grace that he wants to give, et cetera, et cetera. Especially in the book of Revelation where the climax is that all things are going to be made new, right? Okay, well, what do you do with the seven spirits then? So a few options you have there in the doxology, you, uh, a lot of people would say something like maybe this is like a, 
a chief angel or a set of angels, like the seven angels in some tech, second temple literature. So maybe that's what it is. It's these seven angels that are going to deliver this grace and peace. Well, I'd say one of the problems with that, once again, is that this is worship language that's being used here. Doxology, this benedict- benedictory and doxological type language throughout scripture always is tied to um, typically to the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A few times, like 2 Corinthians 13, you have the Spirit included in these things as well. So I think, uh, first of all, John is is putting him in doxological language. So that's pretty curious, right? And I, I like it. I can't remember who it is that points it out, but somebody kind of makes, it, it almost feels like a joke, but it's in a commentary, so it's probably not. But um, he says something like, you know, what's interesting is that the seven spirits are in the middle of the doxology and not at the end. So you could like grammatically say, oh, they're at the end. So maybe they're not really... Uh, part of the doxology, but the problem is that they're just smack dab in the middle before you get to Jesus. And so I think he's, I think the seven spirits are included pretty clearly there. So to me, that's already starting to rule out certain options for what the seven spirits are. And then the seven, the, the spirit moves on there. And um, the number seven, I think is, is again, very programmatic for the book of Revelation. You've got seven of everything, essentially seven churches. Mm-hmm. You got all the seven, uh, rat, the seven bowls and all this kind of stuff, right? I would say even Revelation is structured in seven sort of major uh, parts. So I think seven is just part of it. Well, what is seven? It's, it's the number of completion, the number of God's rest. Well, that, is, that makes a lot of sense when you get to Revelation and you get this, essentially this... Um, promise of rest that God has been giving his people throughout all of scripture. The day of rest is that seventh day. I think the number seven just is, is again, very programmatic. So you've got the seven spirits in a doxology and the number seven. So that doesn't answer all the questions, but I think that does a lot of heavy lifting to say, okay, there's, we're ruling out some options here. Again, a lot of people like to point to angels in revelation. I think it's because, um, it's a heavenly vision and angels are in heaven. And so we typically see angels there. And so, it's kind of easy, I think. And easy, I don't mean this to be denigrating. I just think like it, it seems pretty obvious. Okay, maybe it's angels. But I think that John just so clearly separates the angels from everybody else in Revelation. They they decline worship. They are seen as servants. Uh, they are always facing the throne, right? Worshiping God and the Lamb. And I would argue the Spirit um, a little bit later as well. So you've got this, uh, you've got all this sort of, uh, I call it sort of a heavenly topography, right? This sort of way that the the heavenly scene is set up to where there is a, as, as Bauckham says, a creator, a creature divide that's very clear there. And the ways that he does that is by things like a doxology or things like um, saying that he is in the spirit. There's a sort of divine inspiration type language that's going on here. And he is granted access to the throne because of the spirit. Uh, he is able to understand these things because of the spirit. Um, the spirit, I mentioned earlier, the spirit is the eyes of the lamb that go away from the throne. So he's, you know, the, the seven spirits are on the throne side of the heavenly topography there in Revela- uh, later in Revelation. And so I think you just have to, uh, are there other options that are that make sense? Sure. I think the one that makes the most sense is that we're dealing with uh, the Holy Spirit, a divine person, because of the type of language that John uses. But I think, again, you have to pick up on John's sort of program to get that that's what's happening. Yeah, and I'm far from an expert on the book of Revelation, but my sense is that, this, that scholarship has been moving in this direction. I've seen a number of... Um, commentators or books that I've read on Christology or whatever it might be that have come out in favor of seeing the seven spirits as a reference to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So I don't think you're standing alone uh, in making that judgment. You ready for a speed round? Change the pace oh, sure. a little bit. I've, I've, I've listened to these for years, Matt. I'm so glad to finally be a part okay. of the speed round. All right, good. Uh, so would you rather hike 50 miles or bike 50 miles? Hike. Good man. Good man. <laughs> I like it. Uh, give me a book outside Bible or theology that you think is worth reading. Oh man, uh, the la- I don't read a lot outside. 
uh, All the Light, I Cannot See. Everybody says that's a great book. I think oh, that actually is a very good book. It is a good book. I enjoy it. Yeah, everybody says that's awesome, and it's like, oh, no, actually it is, yeah. which is not always the it case. Is. Yeah, yeah it, w- it was beautiful. Yep, it is. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that as well. Um, what's a trend in society that scares you, Brandon? A trend in society that scares me? Yep. I think working with college students, this sort of uh, radical individualism, I think is continuing to become more and more of a problem that's turning into all kinds of, of major problems. Yeah. yeah we, need to, we need the church. Just when you think it can't get worse, it does. A hundred percent. All right. This, this one may be a long one and a serious one. Um, uh, so an Aryan, a modalist, and Athanasius walk into a bar. An Aryan, a modalist, and Athanasius. What does each order? What does each order? What does each order? Um, the Aryan and the modalist don't order anything because Athanasius has already uh, kicked them out of the pub. <laughs> he's already, it's a brawl. He's, yeah, he's already taken care of it. So, And then he's getting a drink to cool off. Well, he, he apparently wasn't a big man. I don't know how that's going to go for him. Maybe he has to you know, find some thugs. Yeah, yeah, you know, when you when you grow up a small man, you learn how to punch up. That's what I always tell people. <laughs> yeah, I've been 5'9 my yeah. whole life. Just punch up. So, <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, he was, he was certainly a fighter, um, at least uh, in a doctrinal yeah. sense. Um, so... Yeah. All right. Um, so, uh, what was your least favorite job you held before becoming a professor? I unloaded trailers for UPS uh, from three thirty a.m. to nine thirty a.m. every day, and yeah, lifting, uh, throwing boxes off the back of a truck for six hours is not the most fun thing for for minimum wage. I think it may have been below minimum wage, and they didn't tell us. But yeah, that was <laughs> that was not not my favorite thing to do. You were probably ripped though. It was probably it was probably yeah. you know good for your I body. I justified that it was good exercise. That's what I always try to tell myself when I was making you know four dollars an hour or whatever it was. Yeah. All right. So um, profound question here: cat or dog? Dog. No question. Why are you eating animals? That's <laughs> that's disgusting, Brandon. Well, if I had to eat one, I'd still pick dog. So. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> What's the most important book for you personally um, written in, in biblical studies or theology for the last 50 years? So it doesn't have to be the biggest impact on the field um, necessarily, just um, to you, the one that um, you would say, this one is the one for me. Yeah, I mentioned it earlier, uh, Paul and the Trinity by Wesley Hill. I mean, it mm-hmm. just, I think it's a great book on its own, but but for me personally, and I've told Wes this so many times that he probably thinks I'm stalking him at this point, but uh, he's a very, he's a very sweet guy. But I it just changed my, it changed my, my whole trajectory. It was like, it brought everything together that I thought was important into one place and gave me kind of a roadmap to do it. So okay, well, stop, 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 because this actually was my very next question. Okay. So you've actually, um, you've actually anticipated my ne- very next question. So this was like a perfect segue. It's as if we planned this. We're like synchronized swimmers without even trying. It's beautiful. Um, so anyway, my next question was that, like that you draw methodologically on a number of people, but Wes Hill's work on on the Trinity, Paul and the Trinity, seems to be particularly important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially with regard to the Son, he has a relational, um, maybe a web-like um, kind of ontology rather than a hi- hierarchical ontology. Um, how did that help you appreciate certain things in Revelation? Yeah, I think there is a very similar pattern going on there. What what Wes does is he says. And, and I say this too, uh, obviously partially influenced by him, the high-low Christology debate is very helpful in many very obvious ways. I think it's particularly helpful historically when you're talking about what did the earliest Christians think about Jesus, uh, the sort of Martin Hingle and Bauckham and Hurtado and these others who have said, you know, as early as we have record, he was being worshipped as God. I think that is really helpful. I think when you start using it as a, as a theological tool, or as a way to understand scripture, I think it, it gives you a certain level of saying, okay, Jesus is exalted really high and that's important. So he's not just a mere man or something. 
I think what Wes did was he said, you know, you've got to do a little bit more than that because if you're only dealing with hierarchy, you're always thinking about, well, how high or low is Jesus on some sort of vertical axis? And he says, what you should do is think about them as a, a web of relations um, so that you don't have a hierarchy where you're thinking, okay, well, Jesus can't quite be God, but he can get pretty close. Well, Revelation, and he says, Paul, I'd say Revelation, seems to just say he's God. And so the hierarchy doesn't actually, the hierarchy is erased by the book of Revelation, if you think that there's one there, I, I would say. And so I think what, what Wes does is he gives uh, some tools and he draws on patristic sources, which is another reason why I appreciated so much about what he did. Uh, particularly the idea of redoublement, this idea that we speak about God twice over. We speak about what the Father and Son have in common, their divine nature, their power, their eternality. And then we, we, we speak again about the distinction between them. So for example, the Father doesn't put on flesh, only the Son does, right? This kind of thing. And so I think he gives a really good way of sort of drawing out some really good patristic uh, sources while doing really good exegetical work and saying, look, this just makes sense of the biblical text, that there, that there is a sense in which they are equal, in their nature, in their power, in their authority, and yet they're distinct as persons. And I think that's just a much more helpful and really a more classical Christian way of thinking about how to think about the Father, Son, and Spirit. And I think it's it's evident in Revelation just like it is in Paul for him. Yeah. Yeah. I think you, if, you, if you begin with a kind of some classic Christological approaches that are developmental, like the question is always, how high up does Jesus go? God is God is ontologically God and the only one who is. And so yeah. like, how does Jesus slide up that scale and how far, right? And when you begin to do away with that question and say, no, like, what does it mean for a father to be a father, right? It means yep. he has to have a son and always have a son, right? Um, and w- which is really Athanasius's move ultimately, yep. right? We begin to um, begin to think more in terms of webbed relations between people, right? Um, yep. That that um that force us to ask different kinds of questions and so um the redoublement um a business too um i think is helpful um and maybe um i think you be you unpack the be- the basic method methodological strategy of on the one hand a first reading which identifies the commonality mm-hmm. and a second reading which identifies what's different between the persons um, is there a text in Revelation that just jumps to mind? I know I'm, I'm kind of, and if one doesn't, that's okay. Yeah. I know I'm kind of picking, <laughs> you know, um, it's hard to remember exegetical details. I know this as much as anybody <laughs> um, whenever you're on the spot. But I didn't know if there was a passage in Revelation that you found particularly helpful um, it, that this reading strategy um, really kind of caused something new to emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be helpful. If you want to punt, that's totally fair too. Because oh, no. I, yeah, go ahead then. No, I'm good. I uh, I think the first one we talked about the doxology. I think it, it is a it's it's worship language and it's three persons there. I think that's a pretty pretty obvious to me where you see a distinction between them, um, and yet you have uh, and and again that has to play out as the book goes on, right? But for example, Jesus is the one who receives this worship, but he's the one who bled and died for us, right? He is the one who was pierced. Uh, the Spirit ends up being the one who uh, the Son speaks in Revelation two to three, right? When the Son speaks, the Spirit speaks. Uh, and again, John is not able to see any of this without the Spirit. I think where it really hits a crescendo is Revelation 4, 5, and 7, those heavenly throne room scenes, uh, particularly because I think it's it's a little bit sneaky how it works because you have the, okay, so let's just grant you have the Father and the Lamb or God and the Lamb on the throne. Okay, they're sharing the throne. They're receiving worship. They're both receiving hymns. Uh, they're both uh, getting creator language and eternal language and and all authority and power language is aimed at the at God and the Lamb. And so a lot of people actually are like, yeah, Revelation's Benetarian. Got it. No problem. There's two gods there or whatever. 
I think what's really sneaky about the spirit is a couple of things. One, the, again, the spirit is the one who gives access to the throne, which nobody else can do. So there's some divine prerogative there of, of you might call it inspiration anachronistically, right? But this idea that he is actually able to enter the throne room at all because of the spirit. And then my favorite is, as I've kind of mentioned it a few times, but he draws on Zechariah there and uh, the eyes of the Lord that go out and search all the earth are attributed to the to the spirit. And in Isaiah, you have the seven spirits of the Lord um, uh, or the sevenfold spirit, not the seven spirits, but the sevenfold spirit, the sevenfold power of the spirit. Um, that language is all being drawn on there. And you have the spirit being the eyes of the lamb that go away from the throne. So you've got this this three different figures on the throne or at the throne, or at least on the throne side of the heavenly map there. Um, you've got God, you've got the lamb, and the lamb is equated with Yahweh who has these eyes, who he sends out. And the spirit comes away from the throne to go and roam the earth, right? He does. He isn't facing the throne. He's not an angel or another creature. So I actually think that that part there in Revelation 5, uh, particularly, I think is a really, really interesting way that you can say, look, you've got a throne, you've got, which is God language, right? Throughout scripture. Um, even in second temple literature, I mean, this is something people bring up a lot. You've got uh, Moses uh, in certain uh, second temple texts gets like a throne, but it's very clearly not the same throne as Yahweh's throne. It's very clearly something different. Um, you've got like Enoch, for example, you know, he's got some, there's some exalted language going on there, but again, not sharing the throne. I think John is very clearly in a different way than any other figure of his time, equating very clearly somebody else with Yahweh on that throne. And then you just take one step and say, well, okay, the Holy Spirit's not sitting on the throne, but he is the eyes of the land coming away from the throne, which is Yahweh language in, in, uh, Zechariah and other places. And so I think there you've got the sharing of the throne, the sharing of the divine power, the sharing of receiving worship, and also the distinction of them as there's God, there's a lamb, and there's a spirit who le who proceeds from the lamb uh, to the earth. And I, yeah, I like that um, way you, you speak about, yeah, kind of the taxis or the order of the Trinity even in, in, in talking in that way. And that mm -hmm. correlates um, the eternal ordering within the Trinity correlates to the historical missions of mm -hmm. Um, the Son and the Spirit, right? Is it's not the the Son who sends the Father, or something along those lines, right? Yep. It's uh, there's a a certain taxis or order to the Trinity that we see preserved also in the Book of Revelation, and I think um, that's something that um, maybe was implicit implicit in what you were saying, but that I think you draw out quite successfully in the book, and yep. so readers who are interested in um, thinking about questions of taxis and how that correlates to the gospel mission of the Son being sent and the Spirit being sent and how that completes the gospel. I think um, there's a lot to, to chew on in your book. Um, we, begin, we need to begin wrapping up a little bit. Um, so I have a couple of follow-up kind of final questions for you. One would be if pastors are considering a series on Revelation. We have a, we have a pretty diverse audience, academics, pastors, pastors in training, seminary students, uh, lay people who listen in. But if pastors are thinking to preach through, uh, what advice would you give if they were going to consider a series on Revelation? Mm. I would recommend they read Richard Bauckham's little Theology of the Book of Revelation. I'd recommend they read Michael Gorman's Reading Revelation Responsibly. Uh, Matthew Emerson has a really good little book uh, on Revelation with Lexham as well, a little, little commentary for pastors. Uh, I would get a couple of those resources. I think they're just so helpful. They're so clear. Um, I would also say when you re read, if you read the book of Revelation and you come away with the idea that the whole point of the book of Revelation is to decode signs or to predict or to do those kind of things, I would just say, don't do that. <laughs> just let that let that die. Um, I'm surprised you didn't recommend LaHaye and Jenkins. Like, how come those weren't on your list for recommended resources? That's weird. Yeah. 
Well, I, you know, everybody already knows that as an oh, unspoken. Okay. Right, just presuppose. Yeah, little Hal Lindsay was just sort of yeah. like everybody already knew you were recommending Hal Lindsay. Yes. Okay. Right. He, he's, All right. I mean, bibliography just stuff full of Hal Lindsay. Okay. All right. <laughs> Lindsay yeah. stuff. Um, but yeah, I think like I would recommend you know looking at the Book of Revelation. I think the, the the argument that I make, and I'm not the only one making this argument. Okay. The Trinitarian argument. I think I make some maybe some unique or distinct contributions here. I think the big picture that you really have to understand about Revelation is it's about God and his restoration of all things. And if you can hone in on that with some good resources, I think actually you're going to get a lot further um, so that you're not always looking for what's the next sign that I need to decode, uh, but instead saying, man, what is John saying here? And how do, what does that mean for the first century audience? And ultimately, how does the Spirit teach us through this? You know, I think of when you go through that, the section in Revelation 6 and um, some other places about judgment, right? And you're just like, how do I preach a sermon on the fact that God is just going to pour out wrath on everything? Uh, either he's doing it right now or he will do it, depending on your, your opinion of it. Um, well, what's the bigger point of Revelation? That God is going to make all things new, that he's a righteous judge who loves his people and who will get rid of evil in the world. And that's a really, actually a really beautiful sermon to preach, right? Yeah. In the midst of all that, preaching that God is, is making all things new and that he's done these things through Christ and the Spirit. I think actually that if you have that sort of uh, ordering of the way that you view the text, it actually will help you not focus on little minutiae that actually John doesn't want you to focus on and get you back to the big picture, which I think could be helpful for, for people. Yeah, I do think you're right. I, I appreciate your recommendation of all those work, but Bauckham's work in particular um, and yours um, really um, help us maybe get out of the pattern of thinking that Revelation is all about what's going to happen to us Yeah, and um, helps us to think more about who is God, which is really important, right, when we're reading the text. Uh, to have an expanded view of who God is um, is something that is beautiful and important. Mm-hmm. Um all right, and uh, so last question for you, just a chance for you to plug some of your on- your ongoing work. You already mentioned your JTI article. Uh, what else have you got cooking? Yeah, so you mentioned the the Top by God book that's coming out next year. I'm hoping that that will be a helpful entryway for evangelicals to understand the Church Fathers. Uh, I have an edited book coming out later this year called The Trinity and the Canon, uh, which one of my colleagues joked, you know, if you ever want to figure out what I care about, just read the titles of all my books, Trinity and Revelation, Biblical Trinity, Trinity and the Canon. Uh, but Trinity and the Canon is a collected essays, uh, a bunch of collected essays on the Trinity in different books of the Bible and uh, some history and some how do you preach it type stuff. Uh, so those are coming down the pike. Um, yeah, Church Grammar Podcast, I'm like you. It's been months since I've had time to to do much with that. But other than that, I would say go read Matthew Bates's work and you'll be better off anyway. So, Well, this is Matthew Bates for On Script. My guest today has been Brandon Smith, author of the new book, The Trinity in the Book of Revelation by IVP Academic 2022. You can find a link to the book and other inform- information about this episode at www.onscript.study. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. You have been listening to On Script, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.